Hello and welcome to this video. Today we're going to be responding and watching uh, the Truth Hurts a video that he made called The Top 4 Ways Your Body Disproves God. Now this is of course a very bold claim. We're going to be watching his top four ways of talking a bit about it. Now to summarize his introduction, um, he starts off by saying that the design argument is something that people would normally use when it talks about the human body. Personally, I kind of agree with him that the design argument doesn't work. To be honest, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of on edge about whether it works or not. That's why I have Dr. Rob Collins coming onto the channel to talk about the design argument. So if you're interested in listening to him then of course um stay tuned and subscribe so we'll have that discussion i'll be i'll be raising my own objections to the design argument and discussing that with him and also in his introduction he talks a lot about how evolution and imperfections are the main objections to his um kind of why god well, our bodies disprove God either because the body provides evidence for evolution or because the body is imperfect. So I'm going to mainly be focusing on the imperfections of the body in this video and how that kind of plays a role in the development of his argument that it disproves God. Evolution in God, I mean, that's something which is a whole other debate and I will not be talking too much about that in this video just because it's a very big topic and I don't think it's necessary to talk about that for this video. Without further ado, let's get right into it and hope you enjoy this video. Let me know your thoughts about any other videos that you want me to respond to or talk about. The first thing he has is pseudogenes. Have you ever wondered, why is it that if I don't take in enough vitamin C, I would die? But if my dog Sparrow doesn't take in any vitamin C whatsoever, he lives. Biologist Jerry A. Coyne describes the human genome as a graveyard of dead genes. Out of the 30,000 genes that we possess, approximately 2,000 of those are inactive, non-functional pseudogenes. To put that staggering number into context, if the total number of your genes was reflected in world population, then the population of the entire continent of North America would be pseudogenes. But let's home in on just one of those genes, a gene which is active and functional in my dog Sparrow, but is non-functional and inactive in myself. And that's the gene GLO, used by the majority of mammal species to convert and synthesize vitamin C from glucose. What's especially interesting about the synthesis is that thanks to DNA sequencing, we recognize that there are four key steps involved and that our body possesses all of the genetic information necessary to make it happen. But that this final step doesn't occur thanks to GLO being inactive and mutated. How would a religious apologist address this weird perplexing issue? Well, they would say, clearly, as our body possesses all of the genetic information necessary to fulfill these four steps, God designed our bodies with the capacity to synthesize vitamin C from glucose. But now, before we get into this, I, I, I'm not necessarily sure whether it's a weird um, issue. I don't think people necessarily say it's a weird issue, just that a certain genes are inactive, even if that caused negative adaptations in the future. I, I wouldn't necessarily claim that to be weird. I mean, I think he'll have to provide more justification to say why it's weird or why it's a strange issue, just that um, certain people can um, develop certain traits. It's kind of like saying, well, just because my hair could have been blue instead of red or, or black, then, then it disproves God or it's a weird adaptation. I, I'm not necessarily sure whether it's warranted here. And of course, he perhaps has his further reasons for why it is weird or should be considered weird, but I don't think it's really justified by his video. But since our fall into imperfection, our bodies must have mutated so that this isn't working properly. For a believer, that might sound like a satisfying and coherent answer. It certainly would satisfy my curiosity if I needed the answer to be true. But when you dig a little deeper into this topic, certain inexplainable, uncomfortable facts begin to surface. It turns out we are not the only mammal species with this particular genetic inability. This pseudogene is also present in every other primate species. Is that just a coincidence? If the pseudogene was present in 99% of all mammal species, then yes, it could be. But excluding primates, this pseudogene is only present in fruit bats and guinea pigs. And so the real question then becomes from an evolutionary perspective, is that a coincidence? Well, what do fruit bats and guinea pigs both have in common? They both obtain a large amount of vitamin C from their natural diet. Therefore, So, I mean, here you see, I think, is the, the crux of the issue is its idea that of course, you have the evolution vs. God debate that he likes to turn to, because of course, he's a Jehovah Witness as a background. So as a result, he believes that if, if the Bible is not literally true from front to back, 
in, a lit in the most literal interpretation of the things, then it disproves the existence of God. I mean, of course, you have to take that into consideration when you are watching his, because I do think he provides good points, and perhaps that is quite a good argument against Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm not going to take that away from it. I'm not defending Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm just defending the title. Does God exist? And do these provide definitive evidence that God doesn't exist? So in that sense, I would say that perhaps those arguments may work against Jehovah's Witnesses. It does, definitely doesn't work against um, people who do um, believe in in the compatibility between evolution and God. This is not to say evolution is correct or that God is correct, but it's just say, to say that they're compatible, kind of like the problem of evil or like free will and determinism. There are compatibilist interpretations of things. So that's not necessarily a contradiction there for all religious believers. So of course, if you're a Jehovah's Witness watching this, you might say, well, actually, that does provide some questions. That does provide some issues with my belief and my faith. And if that's the case, well, then maybe you should be thinking more about that because at the end of the day, this is a philosophy channel. If you, I do want people to be thinking about this philosophically. Critically, if you are a Jehovah's Witness and you do realize that certain kind of areas of your faith are incompatible with the truth, then I think that you should then start developing your belief more, perhaps draw back from the Jehovah's Witness perspective and say, well, actually, let's take a more non-denominational perspective or actually just say, well, does do these certain issues hold a key role in my faith or my belief system or do they not? For example, um, to illustrate, and I wouldn't use a religious example for this because I know Jehovah's Witnesses might not be too happy if I just constantly picked on religious kind of examples, but if I use um, an example like perhaps a scientific theory, um, the age of the universe or the idea that there was a big bang, you have a big bang, um, they say it happened a few few tens of billions of years ago okay that's your main theory the world the universe had a beginning in science well if someone disproved that it happened a few hundred billion a few a few billion years ago it's actually happened a hundred billions of years ago if that's the case well does that mean you get rid of the entire theory or do you get rid of that individual part of the hypothesis and then you develop your hypothesis further? That's something I want you to think about. If you're a Jehovah's Witness, you might be saying, well, actually, I used to believe in evolution or, or I, now, I used to not believe in evolution. If I change my belief in evolution, would that change my belief in the resurrection of Christ or something along those lines? That's something you should think about. And I think that's um, something worth considering uh, about um, Harris, Harrison's um, video. Um, I mean, further and more about that, I think that, um, if, as he says, a vitamin C is normally obtained from um, from our diet. And that could be the case. And in that sense, you would say, well, actually, yes, it not, it really isn't much of an issue because, well, if you think about it, the reality is, is that if you can get it from your diet, then, well, why should you be worried so much about um, not having that ability? Of course, he's going to talk about scurvy later in this video. But of course, there's that balancing. Well, actually, if if our lives have adapted ourselves to uh, achieve a balanced diet, then and and that kind of GLO or whatever gene it is, is less active or inactive. Is that really a big problem? Well, that's something to think about as well. Well, if and when in the animal's history their GLO gene became inactive by mutation, it was completely inconsequential as to their survival. The same is also true of the ancestor of all modern primates who lived approximately 40 million years ago. Little did that pesky prehistoric primate know as it was stuffing its face with delectable fruit, that this mutation, this gene inactivation, would result in the loss of millions and millions of its distant descendants' lives from scurvy. I would also add as a small footnote that when scientists analyze our GLO gene, the DNA sequence, and they compare that to other primates, ours by far most closely resembles that of chimpanzees and bonobos, rather than distant relatives like orangutans. This is exactly what we would expect if evolutionary theory was true. I mean, of course, that goes back to the point on evolution. Um, I'm not, as I've said, I wouldn't debate that too much just because it is quite a big topic. And I think if I added that discussion into the video, then maybe that would take uh, maybe a few hours to go through it. But um, I do think um, to add upon that, I think, um, of course, you have that situation where he's talking about, well, actually, you need to have a good diet or, or a deficiency of a certain vitamin is is what's calling causing you to have an issue or a problem. And, and why don't we just have all those vitamins there already? But I think that's quite a poor argument, because if, you, if someone came up to you and said, well, OK, why are humans created such that because we if we didn't eat food, we'll starve to death? You'd be like, well, that's how animals work. You have to eat food in order to survive. The fact that if you didn't eat food, you would die. It's not exactly an argument against the existence of God, nor is it an argument against the poor or poorly or well-designed nature of humanity. The fact that 
the fact of the matter is, is that you have to have a balanced diet in order to live. So the fact that he's turning to scurvy to say, well, just because you don't have vitamin C, you're going to um, die or have severe health issues. Well, I don't see that as a very big problem about against the human body in just as the same way as someone says, well, if you had absolutely no protein in your diet, you're going to be weak. Or if you ate absolutely ate nothing for four days, you're going to be in a weak fatigue state. These arguments all are of the same argument and of the same structure. And as a result, if you're not finding the idea convincing that, oh, just because humans were starved to death because they don't eat food, and as a result, humans are designed imperfectively, if you think that's a bad argument, then likewise, you will find this argument about scurvy incorrect. So, I mean, that's just something to think about. I know as soon as the topic of childbirth is raised, believers will say, well, Harrison, hold on, you used to be a Jehovah's Witness. You know exactly why childbirth is the way it is today. God told Eve after she disobeyed him in Genesis 3.16, I will greatly increase the pain of your pregnancy. In pain, you will give birth to children. If I was a believer, I would not want to be highlighting that verse. Now, before he gets on to that verse and we talk about that about a bit more, I do think that that is one way people could go around it and bite the bullet and accept it. I don't necessarily think it's as negative as he presents. I'll be getting the rubber out and trying to erase it from the Bible. Because from my perspective, that verse stands as the most underrated evil act of God in the scriptures. Yes, he sentenced a man to death for picking up sticks on the wrong day of the week. Yes, he sent two she-bears to maul 42 children to death, but to punish billions of women for the mistake of one distant ancestor? A punishment which is unimaginably traumatic, painful, has resulted in mass bloodshed, death and family heartbreak is beyond cruel. It is malevolent and inexcusable. Now, of course, um, if you were taking it literally in the Bible in that sense, you would say that, well, actually, that is a problem. However, I don't necessarily think that that's that's a case that has to be made. And of course, with the Jehovah's Witness, that, of course, that lens and that rose-tinted glasses does indeed create that perspective of saying, well, okay, we have to take the tree. You could also take it symbolically. And I think that it, there's very strong symbolic analysis here to say that while certain punishments do occur from certain actions, unless you provide some people who are completely sinless and completely um, imper imperfect, you could almost say that the punishment provided to humans, if you were to take this literally, even then, is to say that, well, Eve as the, as the first woman is is receiving that punishment because of her sin. And since everyone has sinned after that, that problem has carried on in the same way. And that's some way where, where you can have that symbolic interpretation of it, where while also keeping its literalistic roots, depends on, you might find that convincing, you might find that not convincing, but that is indeed a cohesive theory, a coherent theory, which is consistent and can be presented. So that's not something which is a very big problem for the atheist or the theist, I would say, I mean, instead. Is the story of God punishing Eve for eating a piece of fruit by creating this horrific childbirth, factually and historically true? Or is it a poor attempt at harmonizing the historical horror of childbirth with the God who apparently designed it? Could there be a more rational evidence-based explanation as to why childbirth for our species is so painful? Well, this time when comparing and contrasting our species with that of other primates. I mean, before we carry on, I, I would just say what I've said just now also applies to that objection. Is like there, there is almost this element where he is indeed arguing against a certain stra strain of Christian beliefs and propositions, which may not be all Christian propositions. So almost in some sense, the video could actually be titled, titled Top Four Ways Your Body Disproves Jehovah's Witnesses or something along those lines. That might be a stronger case he could make and perhaps in some sense i would agree with him more if that was the title of the video or that was objection or or the objection that he was raising or the goal that he was trying to achieve scientists don't find that same eerie similarity but quite significant disparity chimpanzees and bonobos for example give birth in relatively little pain so why is it so excruciatingly painful for so many among our species two reasons firstly unlike other species our newborns have disproportionately large heads and brains at birth the circumference is approximately 35 centimeters and second we are fully bipedal to allow for efficient walking our hips, pelvises must remain relatively narrow. What's the end result? Well, my mum, for example, almost died while giving birth to my older brother, Jonathan. She split and suffered huge blood loss. Could you imagine if God in his design studio, instead of designing the female reproductive tract to exit through the pelvis, instead designed it to exit through the lower abdomen? Imagine the amount of lives that would have saved. We don't have to imagine. Instead of risking death when she was pregnant with marrying me, she decided straight away with no second thought and hesitation, tell the doctors I want a cesarean. 
It was successful, it was quick, she was out of there in a very short space of time, and she said when compared to delivering my brother, it was a walk in the park, it was a breeze. But it does make you wonder though, if humans have figured this out, why couldn't God? Well, I think there's multiple reasons for that. I think um, you could say there's, of course, the first objection to um, this argument, which would be, well, actually, there are reasons for why we are structured the way we are. As he said in himself, he said, we were born with larger heads, better brain development. And also we can walk better because, of course, we're bipedal. That's a certain direction. And that's reason for why there are problems of childbirth. So almost he is giving himself an argument for or a reason for why we are designed the way we are, which does explain why childbirth is painful. So I don't think that that's actually a problem, especially from his perspective. Even from his perspective, you could come off and say, well, actually, everything will have its benefits and its pros and cons. You're going to have to balance that list and see which one of it lies higher or is more beneficial. For example, there's always going to be trade-offs in the body. For example, if I wanted to run faster, there's always going to be a way in order for us to escape predators. Of course, we have to have legs. You have to have um, certain developments or design instincts our body has been a certain way in order for that to work if we're going to change that well actually then you might going to have some trade-offs for example you can't have your cake and eat it too if i wanted my room to be warmer then i have to have a heater in it but then if i wanted my room to be very spartan designed and not have any um anything standing or connected to the walls then you'd be like well actually let's get rid of all the heaters right so i mean you can't have your cake and eat it too the same goes with the body. There's always going to be trade-offs. And in that sense, you could respond to the fact of why childbirth is painful. You could also say, well, is it possible? You could say, well, in his video, he says, well, why can't people just have like be born with um, people coming out of the stomach instead of out uh, between people's legs? And you'd be like, well, actually, number one, is that possible? And you could say, well, actually, it is possible because people could cut you open and do that instead. That's not necessarily the case. Imagine what will happen if the reproductive organs were placed in your stomach instead. That could have other problems as well, maybe infections could come in that way maybe when you're fighting or maybe if there's conflict that would be less productive in that sense it could cause even more downfall and also imagine the way how the human body are work there's reasons why our um, reproductive systems are placed in certain positions because it's more protected in those areas if it was um in such a exposed place as your abdomen or in your forefront that could lead to further complications as well and that goes back to the point of saying weighing up the positives and the negatives perhaps in that sense even though there are problems with childbirth there also are other problems as well with um the other situation for example if my phallus came out of my nose you might say well that actually there are um problematic it is problematic in that sense because it is more exposed and can be injured even more in that sense so you want to make sure that in all situations that you're being you're, you're kind of negotiating or all situation that you're wrestling with, you're recognizing that it's not just one so, one way where you're like, okay, flick the fingers, the best possible world that I can imagine is definitely going to be good. You also have to re remember that that world will also have drawbacks as well. It's very easy for us to say, well, actually, things are going now is not good. I'm going to create a better world where I'm going to change the certain things which aren't good and to make a better world. And that world's going to have to work. That's not necessarily the case. It's kind of like an atheist coming up to me and saying, well, okay, God doesn't exist because a rock falls on my head. And well, clearly that is uh, an evil, a natural evil, and that disproves God. Well, well, think about it. if the rock was not going to fall on your head, that world's not going to have gravity. But that world's not going to have gravity. How on earth are we meant to live without gravity? Are we going to just float off into the sky and, and evolution will never have existed or, or the world will never have been developed in that way? I mean, these are the things that you're thinking about. And that's the same thing which can be applied to his argument provided here. Have you ever heard someone say, well, God works in mysterious ways? If that's true, then even the mystery is designed that the body part has no obvious function, which improves types of complications and fatalities. And then that design, that design is perfect. But say, oh, 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 no obvious function. First it's high the human pride and arrogance. Just because we don't currently know what purpose is this or that, it disproves God. God created everything with purpose in mind. Just because we don't know what it is yet, does not mean that it disproves the Creator. And second, sometimes it's actually saying that there are small patches of tissue inside the appendix which aid in assisting our immune system. Is it true that the appendix is beneficial? I would say. I do think that that's an interesting point he does raise. I would say it's perhaps slightly on the edge of an appeal to ignorance, say just because it it 
we do not currently know a use, then it's a, a useless. That's not a good argument. And I don't necessarily think it's arrogance that the theist is talking about. It's more about the appeal to ignorance. So there is a bit of a there's a bit of a different shift, perhaps even a straw man there of what the theist is actually arguing. And then furthermore, I would also point out the idea that, well, actually, there are good uses of the appendix. As he said, there it helps immune system and things like that. Those are good. So so to say that it's mainly neutral to, or negative, as he's about to do here, that is something which perhaps is unjustified and can be thought about more. Beneficial. I would say maybe neutral or detrimental. Why? Well, if you remove the appendix, there's no negative side effects. It does not decrease the longevity of your life. In fact, it increases your chances of survival. Survival from what? Appendicitis. Well, before he gets into appendicitis, I do think you say, well, it's it's neutral or negative. Well, that isn't the case. It cannot possibly be neutral or negative just because if, if a certain part has a positive function, to get rid of it would be a negative function by nature. So it cannot be neutral or negative just out by default. And, and that the fact that something might occur poorly due to a situation like appendicitis, as he's going to argue, is not going to be the negative side effect of an action. It's a negative side effect of what happens. The same way to say, well, if we got rid of humans, there'll be no more cancer. Well, that's not exactly a negative side effect of humans. It's more so the fact that cancer is a negative side effect of of, of existence. You can put on that rose tinted glass and say, well, every negative potential which can happen to a positive organ is something which is bad and could count again counters evidence against the goodness of that organ well that is actually i would say is an incorrect framework to look at rather you should be judging the usefulness of an action by its uses and by its positive effects and if it does go bad well that's a completely separate issue as well and that that is and what it can do is a very clear distinction that has to be made in all types of philosophy and it cannot be conf conflated and, and and something that i think harrison does make a mistake here though of course it's an interesting one to think about and something to carry on on the side due to the narrowness of the human appendix it can become easily clogged inflamed infected and a ruptured appendix can kill you. Is there a more rational evidence-based explanation as to why our appendix is so small in size and has no apparent function? In other animals, especially herbivores, the appendix is a long, enlarged pouch which acts like a fermenting vessel, similar to the extra stomachs that cows possess. It's a place where fibre can break down into short-chain fatty acids over time. Now, what we should expect if the theory of evolution is true is that among primates, who vary in diet, there should be a direct correlation between recent, relatively recent evolutionary historical diet and the size and usefulness of the animal's appendix. But is that what we find? Starting at this end of the scale with herbivorous primates such as lemurs, lorises, and spider monkeys, you see that the appendix is long, it is useful, and it functions properly. In the primate middle ground of orangutans and macaques and other species like that, where they don't naturally obtain as many leaves in their diet, it is reduced in size. And then on this end of the spectrum, humans, homo sapiens, the appendix has almost completely vanished. You may be wondering, well, that's strange because I eat quite a lot of leafy greens and fibre in my diet, so surely it's important to have a functioning large appendix. That might be you, but your ancestors over the last couple of million years beg to differ. You will never find a cave painting of a salad. Your ancestors over the last couple of million years were on the hunt for the most nutrient-rich, calorie-dense food that will enable their survival and potentially to thrive and reproduce. They were not after fibre and vegetation. They were after meat and animal products. There was no close second. In fact, our bodies don't possess the enzymes needed to break down cellulose. That tiny vestigial pouch known as our appendix stands as a testifying feature to our shared common ancestry and our evolutionary history. Yeah, so I mean, I, I don't exactly see this as an objection. As I said, I'm not touching upon the evolutionary point. I don't think that's necessarily very important to touch upon it for this video. And, and I, I do think I would just raise the, the idea of saying, well, there is almost this problem here of just comparing your standard of what you expect to be a perfect body and what has been the case. I think a lot of this is based on your conception of what God's perfect body is, what the world should be based on the Bible and what the world is. I think that uh, depending on how you define each of these conceptions, then you could find contradictions there. But of course, that is just like how you would define anything. If you define anything in a certain way or any set of propositions with the words being in a certain way, you could have certain theories being inconsistent or consistent based on definition. And it's very important that we recognize that a lot of this problems that Harrison is indeed presenting is indeed a result of the definition of certain conceptions and 
not a definition of what things actually are themselves. Because if you're looking at things are or the way things are themselves, there are reasons for why things are the way they are. There's reasons for why the appendix is small, as in the same way that there's a reason why vitamin C is is does not get transformed into vitamin C from glucose, right? So there are reasons for why things are are the way they are. And I'm not sure whether that is, and it definitely isn't, I would say. I, I think the modal scope is indeed stronger than that, is, is to say, well, there actually is no reason for why that is inconsistent, unless, of course, you're defining the world or the perfect world, which has to be the case in a certain way that is exclusive of these certain circumstances. Right? Though, of course, you can understand that from the perspective it's coming from, from that Jehovah's Witness lens, from those uh, those, those Jehovah's Witness tinted glasses, of course, there he could be finding problems from there. And as I've said, I'm not defending Jehovah's Witness. Imagine that you are God's assistant in heaven. He wants to create every other animal species except mankind. And this is where you come in. He's informed you of his mission. He wants to create species of man and a woman to start off with, who have a natural proclivity towards a lifelong pair bonding in a monogamous relationship. They need to stay together exclusively for life. In order for this to take place, you need to fully match the desire, the need for intimacy and progression between both parties. Hypothetically, let's say, unlike the biblical account, God starts off by creating woman first. He designs her body to ovulate one egg per month, to have a gestation period of nine months, and then to have to look after a baby that can't look after itself for many years. Good idea? Yes, yes, definitely because it's God, the boss is always right. He then passes you the paper, his heavenly notepad, and a pen, and he asks you to design the perfect partner, the man. Where do you begin? Personally, with God's mission at the forefront of my mind without need to impress my boss, I would write down that the man's body, the man's desire and need for intimacy must be fully synchronized and harmonized with that of the woman. No matter what time, no matter what stage in life, pregnant, not pregnant, just in birth, yes, after childbirth, if they're both completely harmonized and synchronized, then they'll be compatible, there'll be no imbalance whatsoever. I would add that as God is creating the man and the woman to be perfect and putting them in a nice garden, the man wouldn't need very many gametes. Surely if the woman is ovulating one egg a month, then the man can produce one perfect little tadpole per month to fertilize the egg as well. Does that sound reasonable and wise? I think so. I honestly think that would be the best approach possible to accomplish and fulfill God's mission for humanity. But is that what God did? As almost 80% of the viewers who watch my channel are male, you will know that if that was a true story, God decided to take my notes and tear up into a thousand pieces and toss it out of heaven down to earth. Now, I would say his own dis designing and his approximation of what should be the case is incorrect because we all know that people have different period cycles and different things like that. So, so as a result, if you were going to say, well, okay, let's have it completely synchronized. Well, that's clearly not going to be the case because you're dating one person, then you're marrying the other person, or then you or you're with different people. Well, the problem you're going to see immediately is that, well, actually, what do we have now? We have, on one hand, we have the idea of, well, okay, you, you have one person who is only going to have gametes or a sex drive at one time, and someone else with a sex drive at a completely different time. So, so in some sense, if the period cycle is going to work a certain way, but then each woman that you possibly could be with will have different cycles, and clearly you want someone who is open to the entire situation. Otherwise, then you'll just never have that coincidence, or, or, or it would actually be a mere coincidence that the two people who got matched up would have the same... Um, desires or the same cycles but if, if that's not the case and well i don't exactly see what the problem is to have one side which is available 24 7 and other side to be um available at certain times because if that's not the case then well you're not going to have that match and that match is going to be a very very big problem so that's something you should think about and something it's something which um should should not be overlooked or or should not be something which is seen as a problem furthermore there's problems like death and other situations which lead to such developments and as a result i don't necessarily see this as as big a problem as um harrison presents it to be if you enjoyed this content so far make sure to like and subscribe and if you would like to support us financially go check out our patreon below where you will have ex access to exclusive information like my updates my books newsletters and so much more so if you do want to support us financially then that is something you can do let's carry on with the video god is adamant that his plan is far superior God designs a man's body with an insatiable appetite for physical pleasure, and he combines that with a mentality that craves novelty and new experience. Instead of one perfect gamete being produced a month to satisfy one perfect woman who's ovulating one egg a month, he designs a man's body with a mechanism to continually, endlessly produce an unlimited supply of gametes of his perfect little tadpoles, enough to satisfy, to impregnate countless women. His plan is to put that man inside a garden on earth, where he will be eventually surrounded by countless, unclothed, perfect female bodies. And then finally, he tells the man and that species that if they have intimate relations with anyone other than their monogamous life on pair bonded partner, they will be put to death.
Now, of course, there's a few different things. Um, of course, you could define adultery and say divultery is a, it's a form of cheating. It's a, a voluntary sexual intercourse. I think this definition um, is voluntary sexual intercourse between married person and a person who is not their spouse. Well, well, clearly that's a problem because if they're mul- a guy has multiple spouses, then well, they're not necessarily committing adultery if everyone's um, in a consensual relationship there. And it's not necessarily anti-polygamy just because, well, if 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 you have that situation, you can have someone, as I've said, who, who has... Um, he has a multiple sexual relationship with multiple people and also who is not necessarily breaking um, who is not who is not committing adultery so i mean there is indeed something which is um these are consistent beliefs and should not be presented as inconsistent as he says but beside that there is catch 22 if, if on one hand you have monogamy you're going to complain about how um you are biologically unadapted for that on the other hand if you say polygamy then they're going to complain about oppressing women and people being sexist so you can't really have it both ways right so it's very important to recognize well what is the framework we're applying to and this goes back to my fundamental criticism that you have to go back to your framework understand is it consistent and is the alternative and this is the most important thing is the alternative a desirable alternative and what are the conditions of that alternative and if, if, if those if your alternative has other conditions that you're not accepting or you would not agree with well then there's a problem with your objection in the first place to ask for that alternative so that's something which you want to bear in mind as something which you cannot overlook especially with these discussions Clearly, there is a war. A war between what you have been told to be true and what your body is yelling at you regarding reality. There is a name for this war. Cognitive dissonance. And located within this particular cognitive dissonance is one of the most discouraging aspects of religious belief. It's not cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is when you hold two completely contradictory videos. Uh, uh, no, propositions in your mind which are contradictory. That's not cognitive dissonance. I think that's the mislabeling of a fact. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a form of um, disagreements between certain elements. But that's not cognitive dissonance. The fact that I'm hungry and I know I'm on a fast, that's not cognitive dissonance. That's just me saying, well, I want to be on a fast. My body feels another way, but I'm still not going to eat because I'm a disciplined person. I, I do intermittent fasting. I wouldn't say I'm suffering from cognitive dissonance just because I'm hungry in the morning but I'm not eating until midday, right? So there is a distinction there and I don't think it's cognitive dissonance and that's an incorrect um, attribution or incorrect um, labeling of the situation. The perpetuated narrative that you are not an animal, that regardless of your physical conduct, purely for improper thoughts which God can see, you are a debased degenerate sinner that is worthy of punishment. This leads to unimaginable fear, guilt and feelings of worthlessness. The only way that God's mission when creating mankind and his actual created products in man and woman make any sense is if we completely radically shift our perspective from that God being a God of love, kindness, mercy, compassion and empathy to an inhumane, cruel torturer who revels in seeing us fail to live up to his impossible standards. Putting religious belief to one side for a second. All of us can unitedly agree. But then actually, if you look at the works of Nietzsche, who even doesn't believe in God, he does believe that humans should strive towards perfection and strive towards a better version of themselves, which is not necessarily incompatible with the Christian worldview. And I think it's actually a very core tenet of the Christian worldview. What, what Harrison views as an inhumane God who has us work towards a certain standard, I don't think is negative at all. In fact, I think it's the perfect idea and a perfect um, basis of moving people towards a better version of ourselves and developing ourselves and even if the standard is impossible to reach i think precisely because the standard is impossible to reach that it is a standard because what is the point of a standard if you reach it within two days and then you have to find another standard you're going to go on forever and forever searching for more and more and more and different standards upon which you would then lose your identity but if you have an identity with a standard that you cannot reach then you're going to constantly improve yourself to the day you die and that's i think is the best perspective to have in life and it's best perspective to have when you're going through the world so that's a very important thing i think harrison would perhaps disagree with me on that but i do think it's definitely a good standard to have and a good way to go around so there is no problem there. That there is a disparate contrast in terms of reproductive investment between a male and a female. With regards to a female, they produce one nutrient-rich, expensive egg per month. A male has a limitless supply of cheap, expendable gametes. If he mates with multiple partners multiple times in a short period, it exponentially increases his chances of fathering the next generation, of passing on his genetics. 
In 90% of mammal species, it is the female who does 100% of the parenting. The male's only involvement is his gametes during reproduction. Is it any surprise then that there exists a saying, men, I'll say cuddle, men cuddle who they can, women cuddle who they choose. From an evolutionary perspective, that's not surprising in the slightest, as selection favours men who are promiscuous and women who are picky. To a man, a female's status in terms of power and authority, dominance within a group, is of little to no concern. The question is, is she available? But to a woman, regardless of what we want to tell ourselves, inherently there is a draw to the alpha male of the group. Why is that? Because in many other primate species, it is the alpha male, the most powerful, vigorous champion, that impregnates a large number, if not all, of the females in selection ball. In turn, those females benefit in multiple ways. Not only does their child possess the genetics of the strongest and most powerful male, dramatically increasing its chances of survival, but the female and the offspring benefit from the security, stability, and protection of the alpha, as long as he is top dog, top G, top gorilla. Perhaps you are. I think the man has become our advocate here. I think. I think what um. I think his argument here at the, at the very end seems to be very much saying, "Oh, since I can't live the top G life, well, then surely there's something wrong with the humanity and and the laws that God has given us." I mean, that seems to be quite a funny advocate take. I wasn't expecting that, but I mean, that, that I suppose that could work as well. I suppose um, that can be a valid objection since I can't be advocate with women. I um. Uh, well, I suppose God doesn't exist. Maybe that's maybe that's a valid argument. Who knows, right? Um, that's a funny way to or a lighthearted way to end off this argument. I think there's a last part about God created evolution. We'll talk a bit about that, and then we're going to head off. Believer who was about to write a comment, a comment saying that you believe in Jesus and evolution. You identify as more of a liberal, progressive believer. You worship God, and also believe that God created evolution, which is an oxymoron. If I've ever heard one, I mean, it's not an oxymoron. It's not. It's not inconsistent. But let's carry on. If that is the case, then I have to ask you, which God created evolution? The insurmountable problem if you're a Jew-Christian or a Muslim is that your sacred holy texts explicitly reveal how your God created the earth and everything upon it, according to their kinds, starting with Adam and Eve in terms of our species approximately 6,000 years ago. Just because a widely accepted scientific theory contradicts the introductory pages of your holy book does not mean that you can go through your holy book and any disproven parts just change and write to be metaphorical, figurative. I, had an- I think I think the main problem is he doesn't he hasn't read too much of the church fathers and I, and I don't expect him to do so. Um, I, I don't, I mean, from the Jehovah's Witnesses um, that I've noted, and in fact, from the most Christians I know, they, they don't they don't read too much from um, church fathers, uh, literature and stuff like that. Um, the idea that Genesis was symbolic and figurative can be found all the way from origin to Augustine to, to multiple figures throughout history before evolution was even an idea at all. So, I mean, the idea that somehow we're just changing and rewriting um, Genesis to become symbolic or or changing it from a historical to a symbolic interpretation is clearly incorrect. Um, people have always used symbolic interpretations of Adam and Eve in the past as well. And and that that has occurred not only in the Old Testament, to the New Testament as well. And and as a result, it's something which is clearly incorrect. And um, it's something which I, I'm not surprised he makes that mistake. Um, I think it's something which is uh, honest mistake. I mean, if you, even as a Christian myself in the past, I would have made that mistake as well to, to think that no one before um, evolution came out or no one before Darwin believed that the Genesis was taken uh, figuratively, but actually it was um, after reading Origin, Augustine and figures like that, you do realize that there's a long history. There's a very, very long history in, in church in church history to have that view that the Genesis story isn't taken literally. So that's something just to bear in mind and something to think about. So I'm not going to watch the conclusion. I think that's, um, that kind of summarizes his video. I, I think we've responded to many of all his key claims. Why well, I, I think the conclusion is, if I was going to summarize this response into a few a few phrases. First of all, a lot of it is argu- he's arguing from a Jehovah's Witness um, lens. I don't know too much about Jehovah's Witness. I'm not going to claim to know too much about Jehovah's Witnesses. So if you are Jehovah's Witnesses, perhaps there's certain elements of your faith, your belief, which are incorrect and his arguments may actually apply to you. If that's the case, maybe it's good to, for you to think about it, reflect on it, to figure out what the truth is leading you, to see whether it's correct or not. Perhaps you, you should uh, withdraw your belief on certain 
areas which are incorrect, factually incorrect, or which are just outright wrong, perhaps change that. But at the same time, recognize that just because you get rid of one piece of the hypothesis, you don't need to get rid of all pieces of the hypothesis, just as how all scientists work with scientific hypotheses and, and testing. You're not testing to get rid of everything just because one thing is incorrect. You want to get rid of one thing and the things which are reliant on it, but not getting rid of your entire worldview. That's incorrect. And that's something which would be a ridiculous thing to, to, to try to do. Second thing is a lot of his focus is on evolution. I don't think that's actually needed. Um, evolution is something which can be consistent with Jesus Christ. There's a lot of work by people like Josh Swamidas, William A. Craig, and them, who, who have touched and talked about that issue more. I wouldn't go into depth into that because the video is already around 40 minutes long. So if I talked about evolution, then I would just go exponentially large and exponentially long and unnecessary. Third thing I want to talk about is that a lot of things that he raises is indeed something which is in contrast. Is, um, is inconsistent, for example, he would say, well, this is wrong, and he provide an alternative, but at the same time, the alternative is not proven, nor is death is demonstrated to be better than the one we have right now. So that's a, that's a bad argument to say, well, okay, we, I can imagine a better world, but I'm not going to imagine what could be the problems of that better world or that other possible world. So that's another problem. A fourth problem that I do think I have with his arguments, that a lot of it is based on the can instead of what is. A lot of this is, well, this situation can be developed into something which is negative instead of saying well this situation is something which is negative like the appendix like vitamin c well there are potential complex complications which could arrive in the future that's not necessarily a problem right now and to say that the human body is is imperfect just because if we ate insufficient protein or ate insufficient food will starve to death well that's not a good argument against the human body in the same way these arguments about glucose and vitamin c and in the same way the appendix isn't a good argument as well so those are the summary of the arguments and the responses that i have in mind of course there's our idea about polygamy and stuff like that the catch one too and those things can be rewatched. but i hope you've enjoyed this video let me know your thoughts about the comments below if you agree disagree with anything i've said or harrison says let me know in the comments below let me know if there's any other videos that you want me to respond to i'll talk about that in the future stay safe my friends see you soon thank you for watching and goodbye i'll see you next one have a great day my friends and see you soon